Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Good. It's great to have you with us. Uh, this morning, I want to take us on a little bit of a road trip that's going to go for the next few weeks. And true to any road trip that happens in West Michigan in the summertime, we have some road construction. Uh, so you may have noticed we've got our orange cones and everything set up and kind of the construction mess back here. So uh, please forgive us for that. We are actually in the process of upgrading some things in this room, the sound system and some other things that you may have noticed. And so our goal is to have all that done and everything really ready and going uh, in the fall. Um, so to just really be back and going for it in the fall. So we're excited about that. We're excited about the changes, but sorry, over the next few weeks, you're gonna see some mess in here as we continue to work. Uh, but for our purposes here, as we're talking about this road trip, we're gonna be on the next few weeks. If you have tried to read the New Testament of the Bible at all, you may have noticed names like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Uh, what you may not have realized is that those books of the Bible are actually letters that were written to actual people in actual places, actual time in the first century in our world. And so um, I want to take you over the next few weeks, we're going to take kind of a stop at each one of these places in the ancient world. And we're going to talk about who these people were, what was going on in their context, and why Paul wrote what he wrote in these, these letters to these churches that were in these areas, to these actual people in this actual time. And so hopefully it's going to enrich and deepen our understanding of the gospel and what it has to say to us. And so the first stop on the road trip where we're going is the area of Galatia. You may have noticed the book of Galatians in the Bible, and that's what we're going to look at today. So this is the area of Galatia. It's in modern-day Turkey. If you wanted to go visit it, that's where you'd have to go to see it. But it's that little that's, that spot in yellow. Now, uh, you may notice those names kind of at the bottom, Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, Derb. Those are names of places that appear in the book of Acts. So if you've read the book of Acts, you know, as the church was spreading, these were places that Paul went to and the different people in the New Testament in the book of Acts went to to start churches as the gospel began to spread to these places. And so what you need to know is that the area of Galatia is actually not a city. Galatia is an area. It's a ge geographical area where all these small churches were essentially started in each one of these smaller towns. And they comprise this area. Now, the people who settled here in this area originally were called Gauls. That's where we get the name Galatians from. And they were Celtic. They were a Celtic people. But by 25 BC, the Romans had essentially come in and they turned it into a Roman province. And so by the time Paul was writing the letter of Galatians, by the time the gospel had spread and the church had been started there in that area, uh, the people had become very Hellenistic. they become... Greek speaking, they were worshiping the Greek gods. They had embraced the Roman culture. There was a very Hellenistic, very Greek and Roman oriented society. And so because of that, you would think that the reason Paul wrote the letter to the church in Galatians was to combat that, right? I mean, you would think he wrote this letter to this group of people to say, hey, watch out for the culture around you. Watch out for all the Greek idols and all the things that, that you can get trapped and caught up in and that. But that's actually not at all what he wrote the book of Galatians about. He didn't write to help them combat anything external that was going on in their culture around them. There was something else happening inside the church. There was an inside job. Something sinister was taking place inside the church at this time. It was like a cancer that was spreading. 
And so as the gospel got preached, as churches got started, people were coming to faith in Jesus. People were getting baptized. Things were going really good. And then what had happened is this cancer started to spread from inside the church and it started to affect everything. And so people were literally falling apart. People were falling away from Jesus and the the churches were struggling. And so I want to describe to you, if I could, what was happening inside the church that prompted Paul to write the letter of Galatians. It's It's what the book of Galatians is all about. So essentially what happened is in this little church, things are going well. Paul had preached, the gospel had come, the churches had been started. But then this group of people came in after Paul and they were actually Christians. They were Jewish Christians, people who had had a Jewish background just like Paul did. And they had come to know Christ. And this group of people came through. We call them today the Judaizers. That's the name that we call them. Scholars and thinkers call them this. Now you won't find that word anywhere in the New Testament. That's our word. But this, essentially this group of people, the Judaizers came into the area of Galatia and their essential message was, yes, you definitely need Jesus in order to be saved. You need to put your faith and your trust in him. But if you really wanna stay good with God after that, there are these rules, there are these laws that you need to follow from the Old Testament of the Bible, the Jewish laws. And the main one that they talked about that you read about all the time in, in Galatians is circumcision. You need to be circumcised. Now you say to yourself, well, what's the big deal with that? We do that to babies all the time, right? Although I would, I would just note that babies don't speak or walk for a whole year after we do that to them. So just saying. <laughs> but if you were a 40-year-old man living in a Greek culture and, this, and you had come to know Christ and now this group of people comes in and they say to you, hey, you have to be circumcised if you really wanna be good with God, you might rethink your religion if that happened to you. And so essentially what the Judaizers were doing is they had turned the gospel message into a ladder. And so I'm gonna get this ladder out here. This is a little bit out of my wheelhouse. So we're gonna see how I do this morning with this. But essentially what they had done is they turned the gospel message that had been preached to them and that they had believed in the church into this spiritual ladder. And the way the ladder works is God is at the top of the ladder, I'm down here. And so there are these steps I have to take if I wanna get to God. The first one is circumcision. Actually, that should be like a giant step, like this huge first step. But then even after circumcision, there are these other rules and laws that they said, like you have to celebrate the Jewish holy days and the festivals. And then they said, what about the dietary laws? You should be following the dietary laws because God talked about those in the Old Testament of the Bible as well. And so the general, the idea was if you could take enough steps, eventually you could get to God. By the way, you may not realize that this is actually how all other world religions outside of Christianity work. It's a ladder. All other world religions outside of the gospel just function basically as a ladder. And so my my entire aspiration of my entire life is basically to see how high up the ladder I can get. Only I don't really know how high up the ladder I get until I die. And when I die, I kind of hope I made it high enough up to actually get to God. That's the way all other world religions work And that's the way the Judaizers had basically restructured and recommunicated the message of the gospel. They turned it into a ladder. And so Paul writes in chapter one of Galatians, these are the words he uses as he speaks to the church there in Galatia because they were trying to do this. They were actually 
This is crazy. They were actually getting circumcised. They were actually trying to do this stuff. And it was just blowing up the church. In verse 6, he writes them and he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. It's a ladder. It's not, a, not the gospel. Evidently, some people, the Judaizers, are throwing you into confusion and they are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And so Paul was really concerned about this because what he had preached is that you come to salvation through putting your faith and your trust in the person of Jesus. It's not through your own ability, your own works, your own attempts to try to climb some ladder of good works and following the law to get to God. It's through putting your faith and trust in him and that's what actually saves you. Aren't you glad that we aren't ladder climbers today? Aren't you glad that today we don't struggle with turning the gospel into a ladder. Those unevolved barbarians, those Gauls, those Celtic people, they didn't understand it the way we do. So much clearer today. There's a guy named Christian Smith. He's a sociologist at the great University of Notre Dame. He did a giant research project just a few years ago where he did this huge survey of American Christians. So uh, Christian teenagers, actually, who identified themselves as I'm a Christian. So these were kids who were in the church who, who claimed, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus. And in this huge survey, by an overwhelming majority, these Christian teenagers said, are you ready for it? That the way you get to God is by living a good moral life. That's not the gospel, my friends. That is a ladder. That's what that is. That's a ladder. And that's what's happening. It happens still in our culture. The generation growing up, the generation that already is in the church, we struggle with this in our culture as well. And so Paul goes on in chapter three. He, by the time he gets to chapter three of the book of Galatians, he is just wound up. I mean, he's just, you can hear it in his language and the way he's speaking. If you could hear his voice, I, I picture his voice just being elevated at this point. And as this was read, usually these letters were read rhetorically to a group of people. Uh, he says this, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? See, here's the difference between Christianity, the gospel, and all other world religions. The difference is our understanding with the gospel is that no matter what this ladder is, there's no way we as human beings could climb this ladder and get high enough to get to God. No matter what we do, no matter what our own human efforts are, none of us are good enough or talented enough or, or have the ability to climb this ladder and get to God. And so the gospel message is that Jesus, who was God himself, who was the son of God, Jesus came down this ladder. And we call that the incarnation. Jesus came and he lived a human life with flesh on and he lived a perfect human sinless life. What we were never able to do, Jesus actually was able to do and to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. And then Jesus met us wherever we were in our lives. And it's Jesus by his death and his resurrection that actually rescues us and takes us up to God. So it doesn't matter if, if you're at step one 
or step two, or, or if you're like three steps away from the ladder, you don't even know where the ladder is. The gospel message is that Jesus came down the ladder and, and he met us right where we were. And that it's actually through believing in his power to rescue us, through our belief and our trust in his ability to rescue us and, us, and to save us, that we come to know God. And you can know that before you die. You can know that now. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, um, this brings up a question. Almost every time we talk about this, most often the question that comes into people's minds is this question. What laws should believers follow today? Right? Like people want to know that. Like, okay, so they're really, it's not about me climbing this ladder. It's not about me trying to be good and follow these rules and laws. So the only way I'm saved is by Jesus coming down this ladder and, and meeting me where I'm at and rescuing me. So what does it matter what, what rules I follow then, right? Are there any rules that matter for me to follow? Does that even apply to me at all? And so what I want to do is I want to, uh, I want to look at this together. Um, scholars and thinkers have broken the Old Testament law down into three different areas. There are three different kinds of laws that you find in the Old Testament, which is what the Judaizers were telling the Galatians they needed to follow. So these three kinds of laws, the first one is the moral law. The moral law is the Ten Commandments. So if you've read the Ten Commandments of the Bible, you can find that in Exodus chapter 20. But most of us, even if we didn't grow up in church, know what the Ten Commandments are. We've heard them different places. The, the Old Testament, uh, the, the, the moral law is... Um, made up of the Ten Commandments. So essentially, the, the Ten Commandments are reaffirmed in the New Testament. In fact, by Jesus himself, the Ten Commandments are reaffirmed, all except for one. And that's the one about keeping the Sabbath. Now, for the Jewish people, the Sabbath began at sundown on Friday night and went through the next day on Saturday. The reason we don't keep the Sabbath like that today, even though it's one of the Ten Commandments, is because the book of Hebrews says that that particular one was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath law for us. But the other ones, the other uh, nine of the Ten Commandments, apply to us today. They make up the moral law. So if you think about it, the moral law is kind of like gravity, if, if that helps you to think of it. Uh, so if I climb up to the top of this ladder and I jump off, it doesn't matter how fast I wave my arms, I'm still going to come straight down and hit the ground because of gravity. So that's how the moral law works too. It's like laws that are just hardwired into the universe. They just are true because that's the way that God set it up to work. We still follow the moral law today. But the other parts of the law, the other two, is the ceremonial law. And that makes up the rituals uh, that the priests of Israel would engage in to worship God. The sacrificial system, the holy days, all of that. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection fulfilled all the ceremonial laws for us. He fulfilled all those rituals. He fulfilled all that. That's why we don't do that today. That's why I'm not right here slitting an animal's throat and sacrificing it here on the stage. Although that would be really awesome, wouldn't it? If I was doing that still. Okay, don't write me an email. I love animals, please. I, I'm just kidding. But that's why we're not still doing like the sacrificial system today is because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. He took our place and, and, and he was the ultimate sacrifice. All the sacrificial system did was point to the person of Jesus. That's all it did. And so in Christ, he fulfilled that. The last part of the law is the civil law. 
The civil law is how uh, crime and punishment was dealt with in ancient Israel. Now, obviously we're not in ancient Israel anymore, so we don't follow that. So here's the thing, you can learn, it's actually good to study the ceremonial law and the civil law if you're a follower of Christ, because it helps you understand things about God. You can learn things about God by studying that. Like, okay, what kind of God, like his character would would make a law like this and why did he make that in that particular time? But here's the thing, the moral law is still the one that's actually what we're supposed to follow today. But don't miss this. Because here's what Paul is saying. Here's why he wrote the book of Galatians. What Paul is saying is it doesn't matter what part of the law we're talking about, the moral law, the ceremonial law, or the civil law, none of it saves you. None of it gets you good with God. It's only by putting your faith and your trust in Jesus that you can be saved. That following the law is a reflection that comes in our lives after we place our faith and our trust in Jesus. If you're looking for something to write down, I would say, write this down. If you hear nothing else I say today, hear this. My salvation does not depend on my performance. My salvation does not depend on me. It doesn't depend on my performance and how well I climb a ladder. That's the gospel message. Let me illustrate this if I could. Um, My family, uh, we have a dog named Bailey. She's a really fat beagle. That's what she is. Six years ago, we made the decision to adopt Bailey from the animal shelter and bring her home. And we we taught her how to live in our house and we taught her how to follow our rules of our house. In fact, this is a picture of Bailey last Christmas Eve. This is her trying to follow one of the house rules, which is do not eat Santa and the reindeer's food on Christmas Eve. And so... Here's the thing, we did not steal Bailey from the animal shelter, rush her home, and then try to make the argument that she was our dog simply because she was in our house learning how to follow our rules, right? She's not our pet because she's in our house. She's in our house because she's our pet. Does that make sense? Every once in a while, Bailey will break a rule of the house. Every once in a while, if one of my boys leaves the door open for more than 30 seconds, she is out the front door and she takes a little journey. And usually we will get a phone call from one of our neighbors and they will say, hey, Bailey's over here at our house. Not once have I tried to make the argument that, well, that's not my dog, obviously. She's not in my house, so therefore she must not be my dog. I don't know what you got over there at your house, but it's not my dog. I've never tried to do that. Right, but she's Bailey. She's still our dog, whether she's in our house following our rules or not, right? Here's my point. In the same way that we chose to purchase Bailey and bring her home to our house and then teach her how to live in our house as our pet and follow our rules, God made a choice to purchase you by the blood of his son, Jesus, on the cross. And so, we follow and and learn how to follow Jesus. We learn to allow our lives to be conformed in his image as a reflection of that, of what's already taken place in our lives. In fact, the, the process of that is called sanctification. That's the big fancy word for it. The process of learning to be conformed into the image of Jesus once we've been saved and redeemed by the gospel. I love what Dallas Willard said. He said, grace is not opposed to effort, It is opposed to earning. 
The gospel of grace is not opposed to effort. We put forth effort after we've trusted in Jesus to, to continue to learn to follow Jesus and to be conformed in his image. The gospel is not opposed to effort. What it's opposed to is earning. This idea that somehow I'm gonna earn it. I'm gonna to, to get my own life right with God by some merit or some ability of my own. Which brings up another question. It's another question at this point, whenever we talk about the gospel that, that people tend to ask, and that question is this. So what happens when I mess up, right? Okay, so Jesus saved me, and, uh, but, and I'm trying to learn how to follow him. What happens when I mess up? What happens when I fall down? What happens when the addiction takes hold again? What happens when I, I have a misstep? What happens when I break relationship with God? What, what does that mean then after I've already been saved? And, and so I think Paul defines or, or describes exactly the relationship we have with God in such a beautiful way. I'm gonna let him say it. In Galatians 4, verse four, I, I listen to this. He says, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba, Father. Abba was the word that Jewish children would call their dad. Like, it's like daddy, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. So what happens when I mess up? What happens when I slip up? What happens is God treats you as his child, not as a slave. How do you treat your children when they mess up? Those of you who are parents. I mean, I assume if you're a good parent, you discipline them, you correct their behavior, but they're still your child, right? You don't say to your kids, oh, you messed up. You're no longer my son. Get out of my house. You're no longer my, no, I mean, as parents, we're almost like genetically hardwired to always, that you're still my kid. You're still my child, no matter what. And in the same way, that's how God treats us. That's how he, he views it. And God will discipline us. He'll correct our behavior. He'll bring things into our lives to help us, but it's out of his love for us. It's out of his desire to help us grow. It's out of his desire to, to help us in our lives. So a good way to think of it is religion says, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. I messed up. God's out there. God's, God's coming to get me. People who are still under religion, people who are still under the law, trying to, to, trying to climb the ladder, that's what they say whenever they mess up. By the way, people say that all the time. Um, this happens regularly at Frontline. In fact, it happens usually in the summer is the most often the time when it happens, weirdly enough. Um, but what'll happen is people will disappear over the summer and then September, October, November, I, I won't see people at church and the months just roll on six, eight, 10 months. And then I'll be like at Meijer in the grocery store or something and I'll bump into some, that person and I'll be like, oh, hey, good to see you again. And they'll say, yeah, yeah, you know, I haven't been going to church. Um, I got a DUI. Like, oh, so it's so like you haven't been able to, to get, like to drive yourself to church? Oh, no, no, I, st I still have a ride, but you know, got a DUI, so couldn't come to church anymore. Really? Or they'll say, yeah, my, my spouse filed for divorce. That's why I haven't been there. 
No, no, you, you still can be there. You, you think God's going to kill you or something? My, my, I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. What the gospel of grace says is I messed up. I need to call my dad. That's the beautiful thing about what the gospel does for us is it transforms our relationship with God from this, oh no, I messed up. I slipped down the ladder. He's gonna kill me into this. Those issues have already been solved. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 says. So when we mess up, God becomes the place we run to. He's our father. God becomes the place that we, that we belong, that we go after. The way we've said it, at different times, um, is that the, the way the gospel works is I belong, and then I get to a place where I believe, and then I become. So when people say, well, I messed up, that's why you haven't seen me in 10 months. No, 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 no. You don't understand. We don't say, to, that's why at Frontline, we don't say to people, you messed up, you need to get your life squared away, you need to get your life cleaned up, and then you can belong and be a part of things with us. No, you can belong no matter what because it's not dependent on you and your ability. And our hope is that if you come and that you're able to belong and be a part of things here, that you will eventually get to a point where what happens for you is what happens for all of us at a certain point, the clouds part and this, the light of the gospel breaks through. And we finally realize that, oh, Jesus' death on the cross, it actually was for me personally. And that it's not about me trying to climb this ladder and trying to be as good as I possibly can. That Jesus has rescued me by his death and his resurrection. We come to this place where we believe and we trust in Jesus for that. And once we belong, once we believe, then we begin to become what God wants us to become. But anything, any, any order that's not that order right there is basically just ladder climbing. That's all it is. It's just another version of a ladder. And if that's your approach to Christianity, you are no different than any of the other world religions out there and you still haven't been transformed by the gospel. You can belong, and then you believe, and then you become. That's the good news of the gospel. So at Frontline, we want to keep the good news, the good news. That's how the zeros are going to happen. That's how the church is going to move forward in that, is if we keep that message. And so Paul is writing this letter, essentially, to remind them of what they'd already come to faith in. And what we need is regular reminders of what the gospel really is because the general magnetic pull of our world, the general magnetic pull of any other world religion is to basically go back to ladder climbing. And that's not the gospel. As the band comes, uh, I'm gonna remind you of something. I've actually talked about this before, but I haven't talked about it in a few years. And I feel like, just like Paul wrote this letter to remind the Galatians, I feel like it's kind of my job to tell this every few years. And so in 2006, when we moved into this building, while the walls around us were still being built and the site was still being construction, we, we had a uh, special service at Frontline. And um, the church was much smaller back then, but the congregation at that time at this service, we, what we did is we gave them all these little white pieces of paper. And what we had the congregation do is we had uh, them write names of people, actual names of real people in our community moms, dads, brothers, sisters, neighbors, coworkers. And we had them write down those names on those little white pieces of paper. And then what we did is we collected those white pieces of paper. And then we came over here to the building and we put all those little white pieces of paper with those names in the walls of Frontline before we 
sealed up those walls. And the names on those pieces of paper were names of people who were living apart from Jesus. They were names of people who were trying desperately to climb up this ladder and be good enough. Or maybe they, they didn't even know where the ladder was. They were just living completely apart from Jesus. And we wrote the names of those people down and we put those names on those little white pieces of paper in the walls. And so all around you in this room are those names. Now, why did we do that? The reason we did that is much like the reason Paul wrote the book of Galatians. It's because we need reminders. We need to remember that we exist as a church for those people, for those names in the wall. We are not trying to climb some ladder of success and status as a church. We are trying to exist and and be a place where people can belong and then they can believe and then they can become what Jesus has asked them to become. And I have no doubt, no doubt in my mind, some of you who are sitting in this room right now, if I were to hand you a sledgehammer right now and you began to tear apart these walls, you would find a little white piece of paper with your name on it. Because we've seen it happen. We've seen brothers, mothers, fathers, sisters, coworkers, friends, people that were being prayed for, in some cases, people that that were being prayed for and talked to for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, come into this place and and, and begin to just belong and begin to to sit here and hear the message of the gospel and come to this place where we trust in Jesus. We've seen it again and again and again, and that's why we exist. That's who God's called us to be. And so this morning, we're, uh, we're gonna close with communion. And the church has historically made a bunch of rules with communion. Do you know that? Maybe you didn't know that. Depending on what, if you were raised in a different tradition, you may have called it something different like the Eucharist or the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. We use the term communion. And essentially it's, this celebration that we do in remembrance to remind ourselves of what Jesus did on the cross for us, of what the true message of the gospel is. Jesus on the night, he, the, his last night on earth, before he went to the cross, he gathered his disciples around a table and he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which was broken for you on the cross. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took a cup for us, it's a little vial with some juice in it. And he said, take this. This is my blood that was shed for you. And um, we have created in the church over the years and the way we've celebrated communion, we have created a lot, some ladders that people have to climb before they can take communion. And there are reasons for this. There are are theological ideas and arguments and things like that that that, that's associated with. But we forget (laughs) that around that table, in the original communion that happened with Jesus and his disciples sat Judas and Peter. And within 24 hours of that event, both of them would deny and betray Jesus. In fact, Judas had already made the decision to do it. He'd already started that plan in motion. And yet they, they both still had a seat to belong at that communion table. The reason for that is because Jesus broken body and shed blood did not depend on their performance. It depended on his. It's the same way for us. He saves us. We're rescued by the cross. We're rescued by Jesus. And it really is 
that good. It's better than what you believed. It's better than what you've dared believe that he actually is that good. That what we couldn't do for ourselves, he came down and he accomplished on our behalf and rescued us so that we can have life in him. So what we're gonna do is I'm gonna offer a prayer and then um, we have four communion stations set up here in the room. There's two on either side of the stage here. And then um, we have some lights out. Sorry about that. We, there's uh, one straight back on this side of the room. And then we have another one behind the tech booth over there. So maybe just locate whichever one you're closest to. And after I pray, um, as we're worshiping, as we're singing, I want you to get up and go to whichever table is closest to you. And I want you to take the cracker and the juice that represents the body and the blood of Jesus. And I want you to just stay in a posture of reflection. Be reminded this morning of what the true message of the gospel is, that the ladder has been torn down on your behalf and you've been rescued. We're not saved by our own abilities. We find our answers not in some goal or strategic plan or some behavior modification program. We find our answers in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. That's enough. And so uh, I'm gonna pray and then um, take the elements as we worship whenever you're ready in a posture of reflection. In other words, we're not gonna come back together and take it all at the same time. Uh, we want you to take it as we're worshiping whenever you've had a chance to just uh, reflect and spend some time with the Lord. So let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning and we are very aware that just much like the Galatians, we tend to put up ladders and the magnetic pull of our world and of every other world religion is, here's the ladder that you need to build and that you need to climb. And so this morning, um, Jesus, we are reminded that it's by your rescue, it's by your work on the cross that we have been saved, that we've been redeemed. And so for some of us, God, maybe even in this room, this is the first time that, that the clouds have parted and that light has broken through and hit us. And so God, we turn to you right now. We thank you for your, your broken body, your shed blood, uh, we thank you for who you are, God. And, and as we take the communion elements this morning, God, uh, any sort of condemnation, any kind of guilt that we are carrying right now of what we have to be or what we have to do to earn our place with you, God, would you allow that to just wash away? Would you allow that to be just taken away this morning, even as we worship you? The gospel really is that good. It's really that good. Um, remind us, God, of your good work and what you did for us on our behalf and allow us again, God, to, to just come near you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.